about what uh, I'm about to tell you from the movie March of the Penguins, which many of you saw, a fantastic movie about this, this amazing uh, animal. Uh, its home is in Antarctica, uh, and it is very cold in Antarctica, as you know. Uh, almost all the time, it's well below zero, and uh, penguins breed there at the beginning of winter, which is typically uh, March or April, uh, where the temperature is 40 degrees below zero on a warm day. Uh, so hard to imagine that kind of, of temperature. Uh, but when they're ready to breed, the mature penguins walk from the edge of the ice where they feed. They walk inland about 50 to 75 miles, uh, waddling on their little feet. Uh, it takes them a long time to get that far away. Uh, and then uh, once they get there, then the courtship begins. And the male, of course, puts on an elaborate display trying to attract a female uh, to him, and when he does, uh, when he succeeds in attracting a female, uh, the two show that they are together by uh, rubbing their necks together in this kind of manner, and then they uh, parade around the rest of the pack uh, showing that, that they are uh, an item. Uh, and so uh, then, uh, before uh, the mating begins, one penguin very politely bows to the other, and then the other penguin bows back. Now, uh, what happens next, I'm going to leave to your imagination. Uh, when we uh, go through the Song of Solomon someday, maybe we'll get into it in, in greater detail. But for now, uh, what's really extraordinary uh, is what happens after uh, the female lays her egg in May or early June. Uh, her food reserves are completely depleted. She hasn't eaten in a couple of months, and so she needs to go back to the water to feed. And so uh, she leaves this uh, fertilized egg, this hope for the future, uh, with the male, which you know, seems like a bad plan to me, but this is how God <laughs> ordained it. And so uh, he, he keeps this egg on top of his feet uh, like this, and he guards that egg to keep that egg off of the ice because the egg will freeze solid if it touches the ice. And so uh, this is in 40 below temperatures and winds of 120 miles an hour. Can you imagine? And so the males, uh, as they guard the eggs, they all take turns shuffling into the middle uh, and to the outside of the pack to try to conserve heat. Uh, and by the time that this egg has finally hatched, the male will have not eaten for 120 days since he left the uh, water's edge. So uh, could there be a more miserable existence? Freezing cold, uh, absolute darkness most of the time, starving to death, uh, but this is the suffering uh, that God has ordained for the emperor penguin. And so, uh, but that we know uh, that it's sacrificial love that the penguin is involved in here. And, and we've been talking about uh, this kind of suffering. Now, we suffer, of course, differently than the emperor penguin, but we've been talking for the past several weeks about how suffering leads to glory and that the path to glory is through suffering. And for the Christian, there is suffering while we live, but at the same time as we've been learning, our, our suffering is inconsequential compared to the glory that awaits us in heaven. And so when we think about the emperor penguin, its first fruit is that egg. The egg is the first fruit. It's the promise of hope uh, that there is going to be new life in about 65 to 75 days. And, and while they wait, there is suffering. Uh, they are part of creation, and creation groans. And creation groans as it waits to be redeemed. And, and like creation, we groan as well waiting for the redemption and the glory that will one day be ours. And if you look around the world today, you cannot deny that creation is groaning, right, between what we're seeing uh, with the virus and what we're seeing 
with our politics and everything else that's happening, uh, creation groans today, and we are longing for redemption. So uh, creation groans. We groan, but we groan in hope. So let's talk first about uh, how creation groans. Verse 822. For we know that the whole creation grows and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Well, last week we saw that creation itself uh, is a victim of Adam's sin. It was, it was uh, affected by Adam's fall, uh, and God subjected creation to futility along with Adam. So the earth is in bondage to corruption, to decay, uh, because of the sin of Adam. And so what we need to understand from this is that sin has consequences and sin has victims. And that's what happened with Adam's sin. Uh, because Adam sinned, God cursed not only Adam, not only Eve, but all of creation uh, with it. And so that's why creation groans as it waits for the redemption of sons, of uh, the re uh, revelation of God's sons, because it was subjected to futility along with us. And we know that before uh, the fall, God put Adam in the garden. And this is uh, what happened. He said, out of, the, out of the ground, the Lord caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. So that was the original plan. But after the fall, God said, cursed is the ground now because of you. By your sweat, you will eat of it all the days of your life. So we see that Adam's sin had consequences for the entire earth. And our sin has consequences too. You know that there are no victimless uh, sins. In the best case scenario, we might think that maybe we'll be the only victim of our, of our sins. And uh, as I was thinking about that, I, I found it hard to even think of an example of how we alone suffer uh, because of our sin, where the consequences of sin are limited just to ourselves. There always seems to be some kind of collateral damage uh, to the sin that is in our lives. If I'm addicted to alcohol, for example, uh, I'm going to have an effect on my family, right? I'm not going to be able to do that alone. My family is going to suffer with me. If I'm lazy and I'm unable to hold down a job, well, my family is not going to eat, and soon enough, we're all going to be homeless. So our, our sin has consequences, a ripple effect that goes long uh, past us. Uh, and so even the sins in our own minds and in our own hearts have a way of tainting our, our own souls so that uh, we're not the same anymore, and, and what we project outwardly uh, because of the sin that we internalize has an effect on those people around us at, as well. Uh, in Adam's case, he might have thought, well, you know, it's just even me. Uh, who else could possibly be affected by uh, my sin? But what we understand from this passage is that uh, there were people to come, and every single person who ever followed them was affected by sin. And not only that, but creation was affected too and suffers these consequences. So when we sin, we just have to understand that there are victims, there are consequences, and sometimes the damage can't be undone. So in verse 22, uh, the victim uh, of creation's sin beyond Adam, beyond Eve, beyond us, is creation itself. Uh, creation itself groans as it does, uh, waiting for the day that God will redeem it. And we understand that uh, Paul was a personifying creation again, as he did uh, back in verse 19 when he said that creation waits eagerly uh, for the redemption of the sons of God. And here creation is suffering the pains of childbirth now as it waits uh, for the, the revelation of God's sons. So what do we understand from this? Uh, creation groans like a woman in childbirth. 
uh, like a woman in labor. And we see that creation is devolving. Uh, uh, you need to watch the news for five minutes to know that creation is devolving, right? We see it all over the place. Uh, one of the laws of physics is called the second law of thermodynamics. Uh, many of you have heard this before. Maybe you younger people have uh, memories of this from your, from your school days. But it says that there is a natural tendency of any isolated system to degenerate into a more disordered state. Uh, in English, that means that uh, uh, what is orderly uh, devolves into chaos. And we see that all around us, right? Whenever we see uh, an ordered system, eventually it becomes chaotic. Uh, so that's what's happening to creation. It is suffering the consequences of Adam's sin, and it groans as it waits for redemption. Uh, it's under the weight of sin. But it will not groan endlessly, and it doesn't groan without hope. And that's why Paul used this metaphor of childbirth when he was talking about how creation groans. It's like an expectant mother uh, in the pain of childbearing. So childbearing is painful. All of you ladies who have given birth, you understand that. And, and uh, husbands who have been with them, uh, we know that it is very painful to watch your wife go through those kinds of labor pains. But there is a day when she enters into labor, and there is a period of time where that suffering is great. But at the end of the suffering, uh, she has a baby to show for it, right? And, and so the labor pains, they end. Uh, so while she's groaning, she's not whining or moaning like she's complaining. She's actually uh, groaning under the pain of childbirth. Uh, but it's a groan that ends when the baby is finally born, whether it lasts for hours or days or, or however long the labor lasts. And the same is true of creation. Creation's not whining or complaining. It's, it's literally under uh, the, the weight of the curse of sin as it longs to be redeemed. And on that day, uh, the unforeseen circumstances of Adam's sin, to Adam anyway, uh, those are all going to be reversed. And right now, creation is groaning like an expectant mother. And we don't know how much longer the groaning is going to go on. It could be, it could be centuries, it could be millennia, or it could be today. It could be this afternoon that the Lord Jesus returns. Uh, and so when it does, when, when he returns, whenever it is, that is when creation will be redeemed. So creation groans as it waits under the pain of childbirth together until now. And we, we groan also, verse 23. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. So redemption, I'm sorry, creation groans, and we groan with it. As we talked about last week, because humanity has fallen, because sin and death entered into the world when Adam sinned, there is present suffering. And each one of us knows uh, from our own experience that this is true. Uh, even if we are believers, and sometimes because we are believers, we will uh, suffer because of that. But Paul describes believers as those who, are have, who have the first fruits of the Spirit. And that's a metaphor that his readers would understand. The first fruits uh, is a metaphor uh, in a farmer's life for, for the beginning of the harvest, which promises that more crops are to come. Uh, the first fruits were, a, for, were just a foretaste of, of the greater harvest that was yet uh, to come. And in the Old Testament, there was a feast to celebrate uh, the beginning of the harvest, and that was called the Feast of First Fruits. And it took place at the beginning of the harvest, and it, it signified Israel's gratitude to God and, and its dependence on God for all uh, that was uh, given and all that would be coming uh, later on. 
uh, according to Leviticus 23, an Israelite would bring a sheaf of the first harvest to the priest, and the priest would wave the sheaf up to the heavens, and that was uh, called a wave offering, thanking the Lord for this gracious provision. And then in Deuteronomy 26, uh, that says that when the Israelites brought the first fruits before the priest, they waved that sheaf, and they were also to acknowledge that God had delivered them from Egypt uh, and had given them the promised land. Well, the deliverance from Egypt is the first fruit. And by the time Deuteronomy was written, they had not yet entered, entered into the promised land. That was the promise uh, that was to come later. They still had to wait for the fulfillment of that promise. Well, the Holy Spirit is the believer's first fruits. He's the deposit that God gave to all believers that promises and guarantees that all that he has promised as our inheritance will eventually be ours. And though we live now in a world that is full of suffering and anguish, we know uh, that God, because we have the Holy Spirit, he has assured us of eternity in heaven. And the Holy Spirit is God's way of marking us out and saying, this one is mine, uh, this is my deposit, which guarantees that you will be with me in heaven someday. And Paul uh, wrote it like this in Ephesians chapter 1. He said, in him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, Having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. A pledge of our inheritance, that's what the Holy Spirit is. Uh, it's a, a down payment from God, promising uh, that we will one day be redeemed. And those uh, without the Holy Spirit suffer in this life, uh, without the hope of joyous eternity. It's like having the pain of labor without having the glory of the baby. But it's just the opposite for a believer. We have the Holy Spirit and we have the promise of future inheritance. But even though that's so, uh, even believers groan over the weight of sin. But it will end uh, either when we die or when the Lord returns. We will enter glory. And that's what we are so eagerly waiting for. And Paul mentioned two of the promises uh, in verse 23 that will be fulfilled uh, on that day. Uh, the first one is that we are waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. Now, you'll remember from uh, just back in verse 15, Paul said that we've already uh, received the spirit of adoption. And now here he's talking yet again about how we are going to receive uh, this uh, adoption as we groan uh, within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. So it seems like we already have it, and yet we have to wait for it too. And that's true, because this is a classic case of the already and not yet of Christianity. We have received the spirit of adoption. We have been adopted into God's family. And that is a past tense event. And yet still, it's only the deposit, the first fruits of what is promised to us that we will inherit later. Every son or daughter, natural born or adopted, has to wait for the full inheritance that they will receive. Uh, the rest comes when we enter into glory. Now, this male emperor penguin, he suffers miserably uh, in that cold and dark world for months waiting uh, for uh, the hope. He's got the first fruits right at his feet. He can look at it, this egg that is the promise uh, of, of hope uh, in the future. It's right there for him to see. And, and he groans in the frigid cold, but he perseveres because the hope is right there for him to see. The coming of this chick that is promised makes all the suffering worthwhile. And so it is for us as adopted sons and daughters. 
of God. Uh, we will suffer now, but the future hope, the glory that is promised to us makes it all worthwhile. And just think about some of the things we already have. We have peace with God. Can you, can you possibly put a price tag on such a thing? Uh, peace with God. We have uh, the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and the fact that our eternity is secure. And that's just the first fruits of what we have. We can't even begin to imagine all that we are going to inherit, uh, just a foretaste of the things that are yet to come. So we have uh, waiting, we have the, the spirit of adoption, and yet we're waiting for our adoption as sons. That's the first promise. The other promise that Paul mentioned here in verse 23 is the redemption of our bodies. And, and God will glorify these aging and decaying and, 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 and dying bodies. Can I get an amen? Amen. <laughs> amen. Won't that be a great day? Uh, we drive down here on the way down to church, and Molly says, oh, this hurts. And I say, yeah, that hurts. And one day, we're never going to say that. We're just going to be glorifying the Lord, and nothing is going to hurt anymore. How amazing is that going to be? Well, uh, our bodies are going to be changed somehow. Somehow, there is going to be a time when we don't suffer any more pain, decay, corruption, not even death. Uh, think about Jesus in his glorified body. He was able to walk through uh, the, the rock of the tomb, and he was able to uh, walk into the upper room through the door, right? Not, uh, I mean, through the wall, not through the, the open door. And he was able to transport himself immediately from one place to another place uh, instantly. Uh, and at the same time, in the upper room, his disciples still were able to recognize him. So uh, what can we say about our glorified bodies? I don't know what they're going to look like. I, I really can't imagine it. Will we look like we did at 18 or 25, uh, and yet still we'll be able to recognize each other? I mean, we can only hope, right? Uh, I don't know what it's going to be like, but I know that God promises that these new bodies are going to have the capacity to do things that our bodies could never dream of doing today, uh, well beyond what is possible for us today. So uh, today, if you're feeling sick, if you have aches and pains, uh, if you're hurting, if you've received a bad diagnosis or, or anything, uh, you can trust in the promise that all of this will be gone someday. Uh, they'll all be a thing of the past. We'll never have to deal with them again in our glorified bodies. But in the meantime, uh, there will be groaning. You and I will groan. And, and it's not a whining, it's not a complaining, it's not a moaning, it's just a, a response to the pain, the real pain of living in a fallen world. And it's not groaning just for the sake of groaning. It's groaning because we have this expectation of something greater. We know that this world is not our home and we long for the, for the, the home that we will inherit someday. Paul said it like this in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, for indeed in this house we groan, but groaning because we are longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. We groan in anticipation of, of what will be, what it will be like to clo be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. And so we do groan, but let's always remember that we groan in hope. Verses 24 and 25, for in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we eagerly wait for it. So Paul said it's in this hope that we have been saved. I want you to notice that that is past tense. That is a completed event. In the Greek it's called the aorist tense, which describes once and for all completed action. Uh, and so salvation is a finished work for all who have trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior. 
And Paul was writing this letter to believers. There's not a hint of doubt that, that the people that he's writing to were saved. And so let's just think for a moment about what it means to be saved. And it's, it's just helpful to all of us, I think, to revisit uh, what God has done for us every now and then. Salvation means that we have been saved from the wrath of God. We learn that in Romans 1 and Romans 2, uh, that we are all sinners, all the way through Romans 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all rightly under a God's judgment and condemnation, but God has provided a way out through Jesus Christ. When Jesus went to the cross, he took on the sin of the world, all the sin that you've ever committed, all the sin I've ever committed, all the sin that ever has been committed or will be committed. He took that on himself and he took our punishment for sin. And when we receive Jesus as Savior, God applied Jesus's blood to our account. And so instead of our sin-stained account, now we have the spotless account of Jesus Christ. And that's what God sees when he looks at us. God credits us with Jesus' perfect righteousness. And that's why salvation doesn't depend at all on us, what we do. It has to do with what God has already done, what Jesus Christ has already done by living a perfect life and dying on the cross for our sins. That's why we can't earn salvation. We can't earn it because it's a gift from God. None of us could ever be qualified to earn it ourselves. And our salvation happened at a particular moment in time when we received Jesus Christ as our Savior. The Holy Spirit regenerated us. The Holy Spirit indwelled us, took up his residence inside of us. And in that moment of time, our salvation was sealed and our eternity was secured. And nothing can separate us from the day when we will see the Lord face to face and be welcomed into the kingdom. It's a done deal. Amen. The only thing that stands between us and that day is time. Nothing else except time. And we don't know how much time we have left. Uh, Molly told me that the hardest thing about labor pains is that you don't know how long they're going to last. It could be an hour. It could be days. Uh, and so as we groan in these bodies, we don't know how long we're going to be here. And I'm thankful that God hasn't told us how long we have on this earth. He hasn't chosen to make that known to us. But what he has made known to us is that once we have received Jesus as our Savior, we can have complete confidence that God will keep his promises. And the Bible refers to this confidence as hope. A believer's hope is not like hoping you win the lottery or hoping that it doesn't rain tomorrow because you have a tea time. That's not what biblical hope is. A biblical hope is waiting for something that we know is going to happen without any doubt. And so uh, one thing we see about biblical hope is that it is certain hope. Uh, it's assured hope. Just as we know the sun will come up tomorrow, we have unshakable faith that the Lord will come again and that he will fulfill all the promises that he has made to us. So biblical hope is certain hope, but it's also future hope. Paul said, hope that is seen is not hope. Who hopes for what he already has? So we're waiting for this future fulfillment of the promises that God has made. If we have them already, we wouldn't be hoping for them. Uh, that's not hope anymore. Uh, but hope is a confident expectation that God will fulfill all the promises that he made to us to give us what we don't yet have, but what he has promised us that one day we will have. And so there's an element of, of faith to this hope, right? We're hoping for what we don't yet see. We're hoping for what we don't yet have. And again, it's the already and it's the not yet of salvation. 
Yes, we're saved. Yes, it's done. And it's glorious to know that our salvation is done. We will not face God's wrath for our sins because Jesus has already paid the penalty. But that's not all there is. We haven't yet received our full inheritance. That comes later. And we wait for that in hope, future hope, which is really just a synonym for faith. Now, as I was preparing this, I I just couldn't help thinking about Hebrews chapter 11, the the great hall of faith chapter. When we we think about this kind of faith that we're uh, being asked to to, uh, employ here by Paul, uh, the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, the author of Hebrews defined faith like this. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So we see this confident expectation, uh, this this, uh, sure faith is synonymous with hope. And the author then talked about the faith of Enoch and Noah and Abel and Abraham and Sarah and their descendants. And then he said of all these people in uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, he said, all of these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. So even these folks who lived 4,000 years ago, a future hope, always looking to the future with certainty that God would fulfill his promises. And then throughout the chapter, Hebrews 11, the author ran through the whole history of Israel, talking about the stalwarts of the faith from Abraham to Moses to David and all the prophets. And in verses 36 to 40, here's what he said about uh, some of these people. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground, and all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so apart from us they would not be made perfect. None of these biblical heroes were perfect but they all had great faith. They were all looking forward to the promises. They were all living by faith in hope that God would fulfill those promises and that's what allowed them to endure the suffering, this awful suffering uh, that Hebrews talks about that they uh, had to withstand and And we could say that they groaned under the weight of sin and suffering as well, but they looked forward uh, to a city that would be uh, their own someday. And so they groaned. And and while we live, we still groan in these bodies. But faithfully, confidently, with perseverance, we wait eagerly for these things that we do not yet have. And after listing all of these heroes in the faith uh, in Hebrews chapter 11, now uh, the author of Hebrews applies the lesson uh, to his readers in the beginning of chapter 12. Here's what he says. Therefore, talking about uh, 40-some verses of, of these witnesses who have gone before, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. What incredible encouragement 
from the author of Hebrews. Uh, brothers and sisters, that is biblical hope. If we could read that and just, you know, if we want to know what hope is, Hebrews 11 and the beginning of chapter 12, that's what biblical hope is. The, these Old Testament saints suffered with endurance, and Jesus suffered with endurance, and so we should also suffer with endurance in hope. Now back to Romans 8.25, but if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. Many of our translations uh, translate that word for perseverance as patience. Uh, and I think with perseverance that the New American Standard has is better. Uh, the Greek word is, is the word hupomone, and it means the capacity to hold out and bear up under the face of difficulty. And Paul used this word before, uh, earlier in Romans, in, in chapter 5, verse 3, he said, uh, not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, hupomone and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. So hupomone conveys this perseverance through trials. Uh, patience doesn't quite capture that meaning, at least in English. Uh, in English, patience is kind of a passive word where we're just waiting around almost to conveys boredom uh, to some degree. Uh, but Paul intended to convey a whole lot more than that. Uh, passive waiting. Uh, remember, over these past several verses, back to verse 17, he's been talking about suffering and how we endure through suffering because the glory that is to come is so much greater than whatever it is that we're enduring today. And so uh, it's more than just a patiently waiting. It's a, it's a glorious uh, endurance that we gain by the power of the Holy Spirit, actively enduring and persevering the trials of life with hope, with confident expectation uh, as we wait for God to fulfill what he promises to us, knowing that the glories of heaven are so much greater uh, than this inconsequential relative suffering that we uh, have to endure today. And this word, uh, eagerly wait, that we see at the end of uh, verse 25 is the same word we talked about last week. Uh, we crane our necks, we stand on tiptoes in eager anticipation of what God is going to do to fulfill those promises. So believers, uh, you have the first fruits. Uh, we may not be able to look down at our feet like the, the penguin can look at and see that egg, but we know that we have the first fruits because we have the Holy Spirit. We suffer with the Lord Jesus. We're being led by the Spirit. All of those great assurances that we talked about earlier in chapter 8, these are ours, and by these we know that we have the first fruits. The Holy Spirit is God's down payment to us, assuring us uh, that full payment of the promises are coming. And because he lives, all believers uh, can cry out, because he lives in us, all believers can cry out by the Spirit, Abba, Father. And when we're suffering our pain and anguish, he is there and he hears us. We serve a Savior who suffered too, and he knows our pain. And one day we will be redeemed and creation with us, and our groanings will turn into shouts of joy and praise and so we groan, but we groan in hope. So brothers and sisters, what should we be doing while we wait? The first thing is that we should rejoice. Do you all know that Romans 8 is good news? This is the best news that we have. Romans 8 is just so stuffed with good news. That's why it's taking us so long to go through it, and we have a long way to go still. Romans 8 is amazing, the blessings that are here and the promises that are yet to come for us. We only know the smallest part of it now. 
And so rather than getting stuck in the groaning, uh, let's just constantly remember our hope, rejoice in God's goodness, the trustworthiness of his promises, and the fact that our salvation and our inheritance are secure. So we rejoice. We also persevere. Uh, we don't know how long it will be until God brings these promises to fruition. And as we live in the midst of the coronavirus and the rioting and, and the politics that are all going on right now, yes, we do groan. Uh, but the down payment, the Holy Spirit, has already been given to us, and he's all the power we need uh, to persevere while we wait. Uh, is life hard? Sure, life is hard sometimes, but it's also awesome. Life is awesome, isn't it? So don't lose sight of the fact of how good life is. Uh, we're suffering sometimes. Yes, we have to persevere for suffer through suffering, uh, but don't lose sight of the fact that even though you might have something going on in your life right now, uh, it's only a small part of your life. Remember all the great things that God is doing in your life, too, and be grateful for those things. Focus on those things and ask God for the perseverance to endure whatever the trial is that you're going through now and ask him what it is that he wants you to learn from it so you take from this suffering what it is that he wants us to have. God doesn't waste our suffering or our trials, and he will use it for our spiritual growth and to make us more like his son, Jesus Christ. So rejoice, persevere, and look expectantly. Christ is coming again. All the promises will be fulfilled. It's a certainty. Now, in the life of an emperor penguin, the egg hatches in mid-July, and the promise of the future hope is fulfilled. There is a chick. The baby is born. But that is very, very tenuous. As soon as the chick is born, the female comes back uh, and feeds this uh, baby chick with regurgitated food that she's brought back from uh, the, the sea. Uh, the male and the female then take turns. Remember, the male hasn't eaten in about four months, so now he's got to go to the sea, leaving the baby with the female. And so they take turns going back and forth to the sea to bring back food for this chick. Now, if one of them doesn't make it back for whatever reason, that chick is going to die because it has no way to feed itself. It could never make the trek back to the water itself. A predator will surely get it. So their lives are so uncertain. Their lives are so tenuous. And the chick's life is completely dependent on the life of its parents, which could be gone in an instant. But our hope is so different because uh, our security, our, our hope is bound up in the eternal God. We never have to worry about what could happen to God, right? God is sure, and he will always be there for us, and his promises are secure. And our hope is based on this heavenly Father who is certain. And Jesus promised that he is coming again. And so we look expectantly for the coming of our Lord with hope. So rejoice, persevere, look expectantly for our Lord. He is coming again and coming soon. Amen? Amen. Lord God, we thank you for these verses in Romans chapter 8, which give us, uh, Lord, just such optimism as we think about the future, even though uh, in the present there is difficulty. And Lord, we don't know what's going to happen over the next week or the next uh, couple months with the election coming and with coronavirus uh, hovering and lingering. Lord, we don't know these things, but Lord, we can have optimism because your promises are secure, and our hope is, is not on what's in this earth. Our hope is eternal, Lord. Our hope is in you. So help us to anchor ourselves to you, Lord, and not in the things of this world so that we might confidently hope in the promises that you have provided, Lord, and we look forward to them with great anticipation. 
Lord, we thank you for your son who makes it all possible because of his death on the cross. And we praise him. We praise Jesus, Lord. And we uh, just come before you humbly this morning, Lord, uh, thanking you for the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.